Welcome to the Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. This week, Season 2, Episode 3, we continue with the lives of the Dyadache. Maps and images from this episode can be found on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. If you have any questions, please send them to almostforgottenpodcast at gmail, or find me on Twitter at the Almost Forgot, or go to the website. We are continuing to tell the story of the Dyadache, and if you haven't listened to the previous two episodes, you probably want to go back and do that now. This is episode 2.3, The Dyadache, Eumenes and Antigonus, and this is The Almost Forgotten. Last episode, we saw the post-Alexander order quickly unravel and the death of Perdiccas. We had to jump around a bit because there was so much activity and it got a little confusing, but we ended in 321 BC after the partition of Triparadesis, with Antigonus suddenly the most powerful man in the empire, responsible for hunting down Eumenes. This episode will concentrate on that and the goings-on in Europe as two leaders vie for power there. So, let's check in on Eumenes. Eumenes spent the next year, 320 BC, fully in enemy territory, plundering the land to keep his troops paid and fed. Starting with the rich cities in western Anatolia, he moved to the central region of Phrygia and looted the lands that were in the actual satrapy of his pursuer Antigonus. Despite the popularity of the plunder and the money with his troops, he was still in trouble. He lost a few thousand of them to desertion, although he was able to surprise and capture them back, executing the leaders and reabsorbing the rest. He tried to join forces with the other outlaws that were associated with the former regent, including Perdiccas's brother Alcides. As a full cohesive group, not only would they have proven a real threat to Antipater Antigonus, they might have been able to dominate western Anatolia and from there negotiate some sort of peace. But Eumenes might not have really trusted them, thinking they'd eventually hand him over to Antipater, and maybe Alcides felt the same way. Or maybe the Macedonian pride of the other Perdican loyalists kept them from submitting to Eumenes. Whatever it was, none of the men could concede leadership to the others, so there was no alliance. In the spring of 319 BC, Eumenes and Antigonus finally met on the field of battle, at a place called Orsinia. Eumenes had the cavalry advantage thanks to his Cappadocian horsemen, Antigonus had the better phalanx. As clever as Eumenes was, Antigonus, who has a similar reputation, seems to have outsmarted him. He paid off some of Eumenes' cavalry to desert, and he also had his own troops cheer, pretending that reinforcements had just arrived and then he spread his phalanx really wide and really thin to complete the ruse. It appeared he had really outnumbered Eumenes, even though he didn't. This seemed to take some of the fight out of Eumenes' infantry, and the Greek fled the battlefield with his remaining troops, mostly cavalry. As an interesting side note, Eumenes actually had a bit of a moral victory. Not only did he manage to capture and execute the commander who deserted with that cavalry group, the one that Antigonus paid off, but he actually swung back around Antigonus's slower-moving group to retake the battlefield and give his dead soldiers a proper burial, 
This was a big deal in the Hellenistic culture and probably further cemented his remaining troops' loyalty, never mind the fact that Antigonus was so slow because he had captured their baggage train. With no real ability to escape Anatolia, Eumenes made for a fortress called Nora. He dismissed almost all of his troops, leaving only 600 to defend it, and prepared for a long siege, which the fort was equipped to handle. Antigonus came to the fort and decided to negotiate before starting the long process of starving Eumenes out. He guaranteed the Greeks' safety by sending in a hostage, and so Eumenes came out to talk. The two may not have spoken in more than a dozen years, but they knew each other and had respected each other back then. Antigonus's troops nearly crushed Eumenes trying to get a glimpse of this Greek who had defeated Craterus and was the most wanted man from Illyria to the Punjab, and Antigonus had to physically protect him with his own body. Perhaps thinking that the two were fighting over nothing anymore, and they genuinely liked each other, they talked. Eumenes asked to be restored to his old title, Satrap of Cappadocia. Antigonus promised he'd send the request to Antipater, and left with most of his troops to take on the rest of the remnants of Perdiccas's old guard. Eumenes would have to wait with his small group of loyal followers to see if he and Antigonus could reunite as allies, or if they would have to re-engage as enemies. And Antigonus went off and defeated the remains of the Perdican faction, including Perdiccas's brother Alcides and brother-in-law Attalus. Alcides actually killed himself rather than getting captured, and his army was absorbed into Antigonus's. The only thing left for Antigonus to do was figure out a way for Eumenes to surrender peacefully. But then, in the summer of 319, old Antipater died. The oldest of the group managed to make it back to Europe before falling ill. He didn't have a kingdom, but he really kind of ruled Europe. Instead of passing his, oh, let's call it generalship of Europe, onto his son Cassander, who was by now in his 30s, he gave it to a man named Polypercon. Polypercon had served as one of the commanders under Craterus for many years, and was sent as his second-in-command by Alexander to Europe way back when. He had been left as the regent of Europe in Antipater's place when the old man went to Asia. With both of the two kings, Philip Arhidaeus and Alexander IV, in Europe now, he potentially held considerable power. Cassander, who hadn't had much in the way of command in his life, and might not have gone through some coming-of-age trials and therefore may not have been considered a real man by Macedonian standards of manliness, was pissed. Polypercon had no sway over Antigonus, and Cassander opted for rebellion, recruiting friends to contest the new leader. So, in need of allies, Polypercon reached out to Olympias, Alexander's mother, to try and find one. She was an old rival of Antipater, and no fan of his son Cassander, who some suspected may have poisoned Alexander. Others suspected Cassander's brother did it, but many did suspect that it was one of Antipater's sons that was ultimately responsible for Alexander's death. As Cassander fled across to Anatolia to enlist Antigonus's help, Olympias and Polypercon reached out to the only man who might be willing to help them, Eumenes. Eumenes was also on Antigonus's mind, though, and in the middle of 318 BC, without Antipater to overrule anything, he sent a messenger to his old friend, saying all Eumenes had to do was swear an oath of loyalty to him, and he would take back the Greek 
as his chief advisor. Eumenes would also get his old satrapy back. Considering Eumenes and his 600 troops were literally being besieged by Antigonus at the time, it was an unbelievably good offer. Eumenes had proven his intellect over and over, and Antigonus saw the value in keeping him around. By now, Eumenes had probably heard from Polypercon and Olympias, who promised him generalship of all of Asia. Or maybe he hadn't heard yet. Either way, Eumenes wasn't comfortable with Antigonus being in charge, as the oath suggested, over the kings. So he rewrote the oath just a little bit to put the royal family at the top of the pecking order, and then he swore to it. He had outsmarted the guards, and they let him go. But it was a case of being too clever by half, as it were. Though the guards bought it and let him leave peacefully, Antigonus was infuriated. One of Polypercon's promises to Eumenes was charge of the famous silver shields, and he crossed the Taurus Mountains into Cilicia, the fertile region in southeast Anatolia across the coast. They met him there, or were perhaps waiting for him, and joined forces with him, since he had written orders from Philip Arhidaeus and Alexander IV, after all. The Silver Shield's leaders, Antigenes and Tutemos, weren't totally keen on taking orders from this Greek scribe and were contacted by both Antigonus and Ptolemy to betray him. But they were won over when Eumenes invoked their responsibility to Alexander's family. Eumenes also had the ability, thanks to permission slips from Polypercon and Philip Arhidaeus and Alexander IV, to draw from the royal treasury in Kyinda, a city in Cilicia where gold from Asia was collected on its way to Macedon. Eumenes used this money to raise an army and a navy. He made his way to Phoenicia, the old rivals to the Athenians as the greatest seafarers in the eastern Mediterranean, and paid them to help him link up with Polypercon. But the Macedonian naval force, controlled by Antigonus, was able to take control of at least some of the Phoenician ships when they arrived, as Eumenes' chosen admiral was not on board. Eumenes realized that the opportunity was lost, so he took his army east to regroup and come up with a new plan. Back in Europe in early 318 BC, Polypercon was trying to increase his power base. He offered Athens and other Greek city-states an opportunity to shed their Macedonian-led oligarchies in favor of democracies, as long as they supported him. Meanwhile, Nicanor, a commander allied with Cassander, had taken command of the garrison in Piraeus, the vital port outside of Athens. Polypercon had sent troops down to Athens to take Piraeus himself, but by the time they arrived, Nicanor had already secured Piraeus. So the democracy was installed in Athens, and they supported Polypercon, but the port, Piraeus, was under control of Cassander and his lieutenant Nicanor. By the summer of 318 BC, Antigonus had given at least some of his fleet and some of his troops to Cassander, who used them to sail into Piraeus. Now, without control of the port, Athens could not get grain shipped in, and Polypercon realized if he brought a large army there, he might starve out the Athenians before he starved out Cassander and Piraeus, so he left a small force and withdrew. Instead, he went about trying to take the Peloponnesian Peninsula. He marched his troops, which included more than 50 elephants, throughout the peninsula. The animals were the remainder of the half of Perdiccas's elephant forces given to Antipater. The other half belonged to Antigonus. 
Some cities certainly resisted, but one in particular, Megalopolis, raised a significant number of troops and importantly, had a veteran of one of Alexander's battles with the Indians. He knew how to counter against the elephants, and he actually built a trap, leading the elephants to a certain area covered with spike strips that made them useless. Eventually, Polyperchon had to lift the siege and withdraw, defeated not by other Macedonian leaders, but by a Greek city-state. Around that same time, Cletos the White, a Macedonian general, satrap of Lydia, and a well-regarded admiral, was fighting for Polyperchon. He was the admiral who had defeated the Athenians a few years earlier in that sea battle that ended their naval supremacy for good and helped to finish off the Hellenic War. He was sent to the Hellespont to keep Antigonus from crossing over and fought and won a sea battle near a little Greek colony called Byzantium against Nicanor, the man who had captured Piraeus for Cassander. Cletus beached his ships after the battle to give his men a rest. Antigonus somehow snuck a small force across the Hellespont and began firing missile weapons at the sailors who, in a panic, quickly threw their stuff on their vessels to go out to sea where Nicanor was waiting for them in a pre-coordinated attack. This second battle didn't go so well for Cletos, and most of his ships were lost. He escaped, but was eventually captured and killed soon after. Now, without elephants and a navy, Polyperchon began to lose those Greek city-states he had recently won over. Cassander, still a bit of an anomalous character in that he wasn't really a general, was probably pretty paranoid about his status. So, when Nicanor, now a bona fide hero after taking Athens and the Hellespont, returned to Athens, Cassander found some reason to put him on trial and have him killed. Maybe Nicanor was trying to elevate himself, or maybe it was all Cassander's own insecurity. All of these battles in Greece led to an opportunity for Eurydice, who, along with her husband Philip Arhidaeus, had somehow escaped from Polyperchon's protection. It may have been when Cassander came in that year with an army and expelled Polyperchon from Pella, the Macedonian capital. She declared that Cassander was her husband's true regent and stripped Polyperchon of all his powers, although her words meant nothing on that front. This in turn forced Olympias's hand, who maybe felt that now she really had to help Polyperchon to protect her grandson Alexander IV, who was still under his protection. Polyperchon went to Epirus on the west coast of the Balkan Peninsula, modern-day Albania and northwest Greece. It was a small independent kingdom where the Molossians, who were allied with Macedon, lived. Olympias was from there, her father was once the king, and her uncle was king when she married Philip II in order to seal an alliance. This made, at least for a moment, a change in the overall situation of the war. Prior to this, essentially Antigonus and his allies, Ptolemy and Cassander, were rebels against the legitimate regime, while Eumenes and Polyperchon were supporters of it. But once the kings were divided, it was a much more proper civil war. This situation, though, would not last long. Olympias was bringing five-year-old Alexander IV to Pella to install him there as king, along with his regent Polyperchon. Cassander was down in Greece fighting, and Philip Arhidaeus was in Pella, unprotected by Cassander. Polyperchon and Olympias went after the older king to, 
reestablish their protection of him. But he and Eurydice were leading forces themselves, rather than waiting to be recaptured. When the armies met, it is said that Eurydice had arrayed herself in full Macedonian armor ready for battle. Olympias may also have been at the front of the opposing army. They were mostly Molossian troops. But no real battle came to be. Eurydice's young troops couldn't bring themselves to fight against Alexander the Great's mother and his only legitimate son. Philip Arhideus and Eurydice were captured, and Polyperchon and Olympias were able to march in and retake Pella. Olympias imprisoned her stepson and his young wife, but their protests were too loud and she arranged to have them killed. Eurydice killed herself with her own clothes rather than use one of the objects Olympias sent along in an act of defiance which probably didn't bother Olympias all that much when you think about it. The Queen Mother didn't stop there. According to Diodorus Siculus, who wrote the Bibliotheca Historica in the 1st century BC, the oldest surviving work on Alexander and the Diadochi, quote, she also selected the hundred most prominent Macedonians from among the friends of Cassander and slaughtered them all. But by glutting her rage with such atrocities, she soon caused many of the Macedonians to hate her ruthlessness. For all of them remembered the words of Antipater, who, as if uttering a prophecy on his deathbed, advised them never to permit a woman to hold first place in the kingdom, unquote. No doubt if Antipater really did say this on his deathbed, he had his old rival Olympias in mind, although it's possible he had both Olympias and Eurydice in mind. It's also likely that this is just embellishment and he said no such thing. By early 317 BC, Polyperchon, Olympias, and Alexander IV held Macedon, while Cassander held the Peloponnese. There was little doubt he would be coming north to take Pella, while the other rebels, Ptolemy and Antigonus, were busy with their own plans. And now they were rebels again. With Philip Arhideus dead, there was only one surviving king, Alexander IV, and Olympias and Polyperchon were his regents. Eumenes was also serving the regime, while Antigonus, Cassander, and Ptolemy were against the regime, however legitimate it may have been at this point. We'll get to what Ptolemy was working on next episode, but Antigonus was busy chasing after Eumenes, the other ally of the regime. In late 318, without a navy to help him link up with Polyperchon and Olympias, Eumenes headed east towards Babylon. Seleucus was satrap of Babylon, and he was sheltering Alexander's former bodyguard Python, who had been powerful enough to rule much of the eastern part of the empire, but not powerful enough to keep it. Python had executed one of the other eastern satraps, and tried to put his brother in that role. Now, there were certainly satraps that were more equal than others, but this must have been a bridge too far, and the other satraps in the region ganged up on him and forced him to flee. Eumenes tried to enlist the help of Seleucus and Python in the name of the kings he was representing. They were all probably still unaware that there was only one king left, if Philip Arhideus was even dead yet by the time he reached Babylon. Unfortunately for Eumenes, these two dyadochi gave him a familiar response. They said they supported the kings but wouldn't take orders from him, you know, being a Greek secretary and all. They actually tried to get the silver shields to switch sides, but Antigenes and Tutamos once again stayed loyal. Without enough troops to fight Eumenes' now huge army with its core of veterans, they had to let him pass through. 
By the early part of 317 BC, he made his way to the satrapy of Susiana, where he met up with the leader of Persis, the next satrapy over. The satrap of Persis, Pukestis, should be a familiar name. I mentioned him back in the first episode. He was one of Alexander's seven bodyguards, the one who brought 20,000 Persian troops to Babylon right after his death. Eumenes was thrilled to add this massive army to his, as well as a large force of elephants that was brought over from India by a satrap named Eudemos. If you listen to the episode on Chandragupta Maurya, you may remember him as the guy who killed King Porus just as Chandragupta was starting his rebellion in the region, before fleeing the scene to help in the wars of the Diadochi. Well, here he is with a bunch of elephants he snagged from India. Meanwhile, Antigonus followed the same route as Eumenes and formed an alliance with Seleucus and Python on his way. He caught up with Eumenes outside the ancient city of Susa, but Eumenes was across two large rivers. Eumenes had a brilliant plan to force Antigonus to go north through Media and around the rivers because the river crossing would just be too dangerous with enemy troops waiting on the other side. It was a long journey, many weeks. And when he was far enough north, Eumenes would then dash westward back to the Mediterranean and try to link up with Polyperchon and the royal family. But Antigonus tried to cross the rivers anyway, despite the danger. His men began crossing the first river, the Coprates, without really being aware of where Eumenes was. His men were surprised and attacked halfway through it. According to James Fromm, quote, Antigonus's men briefly tried to resist, then all fled at once for the boats, some of which sank under the weight of those cramming onto them, or dove in panic into the river, which carried away all but the strongest swimmers. Their comrades, out of artillery range across the Coprates, could merely look on in dismay. More than 4,000 men finally surrendered and became prisoners of Eumenes to be incorporated into his army, unquote. The wily Antigonus was outsmarted, and he did exactly what Eumenes wanted him to do next, march north to Media. Antigonus went up the road to the capital of Media, Ecbatana, a month away, and rested his troops in a city with provisions and water since it was the heat of the summer. Unfortunately for Eumenes, his eastern allies weren't on board with marching west. His immediate generals wanted to do it, but Pukestes and his other eastern allies were understandably unwilling to abandon their homes to Antigonus's forces. Rather than go on without them, Eumenes abandoned his plan and decided to stay in the east. They marched to Pukestes's capital of Persepolis, a few weeks southeast, and rivalries began to show. Eumenes was still haunted by his inability to convince the Macedonians that, as a Greek, he could be their leader. So when word came that Antigonus was marching, Eumenes decided they should go and meet him in battle before the coalition fragmented. They met at a town called Paretikini and lined up about 80,000 troops in total, pretty evenly divided. They set up less than a half a mile apart from one another and waited five days before there was any action. When it appeared that Antigonus was going to go to nearby Gabiene, where food was more plentiful, Eumenes sent out deserters with misinformation that he was going to attack that night. Antigonus believed it and set his men up to defend against an attack, while Eumenes headed out to park himself in Gabiene first. 
He got a several-hour head start before Antigonus figured out what was going on and marched his army out. When Eumenes spotted Antigonus, it was only the cavalry, but the positioning of Antigonus's forces made it hard to see, so Eumenes had to stop and array for battle. This then gave Antigonus time to bring up the rest of his forces. It was one of the largest battles in ancient history, if not the largest up to that point. Python, leading Antigonus's light cavalry, advanced first, but he came too far and he was chased off when Eumenes sent his own light horsemen across the whole battlefield to engage them. Despite the advantage of higher ground, Antigonus's infantry could not resist the Silver Shield's onslaught and it was being routed. Things were looking like a disaster for the Antigonid force, and he had an opportunity to withdraw with most of his forces intact since he owned the higher ground. Instead, he spotted an opening where Eumenes's light cavalry had left to go chase Python, and he attacked there. Eumenes had to call the Silver Shields over, stopping them from demolishing Antigonus's phalanx, and so the battle ground to a halt. Now, I've looked at this account several times, and one thing that has confused me was the part that the Silver Shields played. They were pretty clearly hypaspists, a sort of hybrid shock troop like we described in the last episode. But here, according to all the different accounts, it seems like they took on the opposing Macedonian phalanx. Every account I've read has this. Here's Diodorus Siculus speaking on the order of battle. Quote, When Eumenes had made the left wing strong in this way, he placed the phalanx beside it. The outer end of this consisted of the mercenaries who numbered more than 6,000. After them, he drew up the Macedonian silver shields, more than 3,000 in number, undefeated troops, the fame of whose exploits caused much fear among the enemy, and finally the men from the Hypaspists, more than 3,000, with Antigenes and Tutemos leading both them and the silver shields, unquote. So there Diodorus pretty clearly delineates between the phalanx and the silver shields and the hypaspists. Then, describing the battle, quote, The infantry, for a considerable time, had been engaged in a battle of the phalanxes, but finally, after many had fallen on both sides, Eumenes' men were victorious because of the valor of the Macedonian silver shields. These warriors were already well on in years, but because of the great number of battles they had fought, they were outstanding in hardness and skill, so that no one confronting them was able to withstand their might. Therefore, although there were then only 3,000 of them, they had become, so to speak, the spearhead of the whole army. Unquote. So there he talks about them engaging with the phalanx. He lists them separately from the phalanx and names their two commanders, Antigenes and Tutemos, as leading them and the Hypaspists, but also differentiates the group. So I think the best assumption is that they were indeed hypaspists, but elite ones. Now, these kind of troops were armed with spears, so they may well have acted at times as a phalanx, or just knew how to take one on in a way that was effective. Anyway, I'm sure that doesn't clear it up for you because I'm still a bit confused. So as for the results of the battle, Eumenes' forces had killed thousands more of the enemy than their opponents did, but... Needing to protect his baggage train, they abandoned the field. This, and the ability to give the dead funeral rites, was culturally the symbol for victory, which Antigonus then claimed. But Antigonus knew he had really been defeated, and he escaped back to Media to lick his wounds. 
They were almost a month's march apart over the winter of late 317, with Eumenes resting more comfortably in Persis, his forces spread over miles for winter quarters. If Antigonus came back, it would take a month, so Eumenes would have time to gather his forces together again. But once he was rested, instead of marching along the roads, Antigonus tried a sneak attack. There was a route through barren wilderness that could be done in a little more than a week, but it would be difficult, especially during winter. Antigonus, though, thought the surprise it could bring would be worth it, especially considering it would take days for Eumenes to gather his forces. They could be picked off group by group. In December of 317, they loaded up enough provisions for a 10-day journey, and they marched through these mountains without lighting fires which would give away their presence. But it was too cold and windy in the Persian highlands to bear, and about halfway through their march, they ended up lighting fires and giving away their presents. These fires may have also been necessary to keep the elephants alive, in which case it would have been hard to blame the soldiers. Pukestus was warned by his scouts and suggested a retreat. Antigonus was only a couple days away. But Eumenes said he could trick Antigonus and buy them enough time to gather their scattered forces. He sent men up to high ridges to light fires and let them die out, the way a large army would do it. It appeared to Antigonus that the path to where he wanted to surprise Eumenes was occupied by a large force. In other words, Antigonus bought the ruse, and he moved out of the route he was on, knowing the element of surprise was gone, to ground where his men could rest and more easily gather food. This gave Eumenes the time he needed, with his elephant herd arriving just in time for Antigonus to realize he had been tricked. Early in 316 BC, the opposing forces lined up to take each other on one last time. Once again, the silver shields would take on the inferior phalanx forces. Antigenes, the leader of this force of men who are now in their 60s, sent a horseman up to the front line to taunt his enemy. According to Diodorus, quote, riding up alone to within earshot opposite the place where the phalanx of Antigonus's Macedonians were stationed, shouted, Wicked men, are you sinning against your fathers who conquered the whole world under Philip and Alexander? And added that in a little while they would see that these veterans were worthy both of the kings and of their own past battles, unquote. The infantry of Antigonus would prove the leader of the Silver Shields correct demoralized before battle and defeated after it. Again, the battle mostly went to Eumenes, but again he did not gain a total victory from it. Pukestis abandoned the fight, maybe in a prearranged deal with Antigonus, and so the silver shields, despite routing Antigonus's infantry, could be easily outflanked. They formed a defensive position and were able to leave the field safely. The battle of the remaining cavalry was relatively even, but unnoticed in the din of battle, Antigonus had sent a light cavalry force around the battlefield to take the baggage train of his enemy. Eumenes knew he still had the advantage, even without Pukestis, thanks to the silver shields. All he needed was to attack the next day, and they would recover the baggage train and maybe end the conflict entirely. But the silver shields had had enough, Tutamos, the second-in-command, arranged a deal with Antigonus to give up Eumenes. Upset that they had just lost the baggage train, 
And keep in mind, this not only held all of their worldly possessions, but also many of the families of these soldiers who had been marching around for four decades. The silver shield surrounded Eumenes and captured him. He was taken prisoner, and Pucestus, with all his troops, declared for Antigonus, as did the other allies. Antigonus did not appear to want to have Eumenes killed. He admired him too much, and he probably didn't need to do it, except his senior officers demanded it. So, after dragging it out and delaying for a few weeks, he had Eumenes murdered in his cell, without any record of the two speaking face to face again. Antigonus also had Antigenes, the leader of the Silver Shields, thrown in a pit and burned alive. Can't have someone with such a similar name left around. Eumenes was one of the most admirable of the Diatiki. He wanted power just as every other character in the story did, but he also always insisted he was fighting for the Macedonian royal family. While the other Macedonian leaders looked down on him, Both Philip II and Alexander the Great had admired him and given him opportunities to prove his worth, which he did time and time again. They had incorporated this Greek, perhaps a minor allied nobleman, into the very heart of the empire's leadership, and he never forgot that. The Argiad dynasty meant something to him. Around the same time, back in Macedonia, things were not going so well for his allies either. They couldn't have known about his defeat, but they probably saw that theirs was coming soon. Polyperchon had not done a good job of defending the mountain passes, and Cassander had quickly come to surround Olympias and the royal family. She reached out to a man named Aristonis, the only one of Alexander's bodyguards who hasn't had a part in this story. At the partition of Babylon, he had supported supreme authority going to Perdiccas and had been fighting for him on Cyprus when Perdiccas was killed. Aristonis surrendered and was given permission to retire peacefully to Pella, but Olympias convinced him to return to service to defend the royal family. He went and took the city of Amphipolis, but Cassander's forces were soon upon them. Olympias had retreated to the city of Pydna, but she didn't have provisions to wait out a siege. As Cassander arrived, she surrendered and asked Aristonis to do the same after pledges of safety. But Cassander, always the paranoid leader, went back on his word and had them both killed before the end of 316 BC. Back in the east, Antigonus was now the sole ruler with no rivals. Except for maybe Python, who had been heavily involved in all of this mess, was the satrap of wealthy media, and was popular with the troops. He probably could have broken off the eastern half of the Asian part of the empire as his own kingdom if he had the brains to do it and he'd always been very ambitious. It seems like he had tried to do that before. So, Antigonus invited him to a meeting, accused him of some trumped-up charges, and had him killed. After this, at some point in 316 or perhaps 315 BC, Antigonus began his return to the west. He stopped in Persepolis and partitioned the empire from there, handing out satrapies as had been done in Babylon and Triparadesis, but this time only in Asia. That's all he controlled, for now. But he was, like Perdiccas before him, now the most powerful of the Diatiki. He also had most of the empire's treasury, and thanks to the territory he controlled, its income. The allied rebels had won, but Alexander's world was divided. Eumenes was dead, as was Olympias, Philip Arhideus, and Eurydice, although Polyperchon was still taking refuge in some allied Greek city. 
But Cassander, Ptolemy, and Antigonus were the supreme commanders in each of their regions. But there were still other powerful men in the empire, including Lysimachus, who had been given Thrace back in 323 BC and had been fighting the Thracians ever since to keep it, and Seleucus, the satrap of Babylon, who had helped assassinate Perdiccas and led troops with Antigonus against Eumenes. None of these men were officially kings, Antigonus still called himself the royal general of Asia, even though he expected to be treated by everyone as if he were Persian royalty. Because Alexander IV was still alive, and everyone maintained the illusion that they were still beholden to this heir to the Argead dynasty. Antigonus, though, held a lot more than the rest, and as he began to assert his power in his own territory, first with Python, the other men realized he would soon be coming after them. His next target was Seleucus, who controlled probably the biggest city in the empire, Babylon. The conflict was not over, and peace was not at hand. Next time, war resumes as Seleucus becomes Antigonus' next target. If you haven't done so yet, please take the opportunity to go to iTunes and rate and review the podcast. Thanks again for listening. 